Isaiah chapter 55, it says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. And eat what is good. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and make your soul live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people. A leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know. And nations who... Do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, But water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come the cypress tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. In Isaiah chapter 55, we come to the pinnacle of, of the salvation song in Isaiah chapter 53. Remember, we were introduced to the suffering servant. And with the suffering servant comes a glorious invitation and participation. And we're going to be looking at an amazing product and an amazing promise. Right now, in our culture and society, we find ourselves in an election cycle. And in an election cycle, a lot of things happen. Politicians make promises. And when they make their promises, what is your expectation? That they will break their promises. They promise worldwide peace. They promise economic prosperity. They promise justice. That's why when I go to buy a used car, when the person, they'll typically come out and they'll say, what will it take for you to buy this car from me today? And I say, if you can completely eliminate world hunger and the threat of nuclear annihilation, I'll buy this car from you today. 
And they go, no, no, really. I go, no, really. We laugh. We want peace and we want prosperity and we want justice. There's something inside of us that wants all of those things. And the reality is that one day we will have peace and prosperity and justice, but it's going to come in Christ. In this passage, we're given a glorious invitation to come to the Lord, to seek the Lord. We're invited to live righteously and worship the Lord. And so we see the glorious invitation. It begins in verse 1. Look what it says. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. The invitation is too good to refuse. It's too urgent to delay. And so this is the message. This is the message of the gospel. No wonder Jesus insists that the message of the gospel be preached to everyone. So he says, ho, he's drawing attention. Everyone who thirsts. The invitation is for everyone. It's not just for the righteous. It's not just for the religious. It's for the wicked. There comes a time when endless speculation has to come to an end, where debate is done, where hesitation and excuse is over with. And so Isaiah is extending by the power of the Holy Spirit an invitation for everyone everywhere to get up and, ex- and, and accept God's gracious invitation. And that's what the exclamation is at the very beginning of the verse. And the invitation isn't restricted to the Jews who are in Babylon, but to the Gentiles and all of the nations. The, the invitation isn't restricted to the rich, but it extends to the poor, to the utterly famished, to those who are completely destitute, to those who don't have anything to bring and nothing to offer. And he says, oh, everyone who thirsts. And the very fact is that those who are allowed to participate are those who are thirsty. If you're thirsty, he'll satisfy your thirst. If you're hungry, he'll satisfy you. He's talking about salvation. The hungry, the thirsty can be delivered, can be quenched, can be satisfied. And you've got to understand something. Remember, in this culture and in this society, water is at a premium. And you know where water is most valuable? It's where it's typically not found. And water is rarely found in a desert. And food is rarely found in a dry and a hot climate. When you travel through the desert, it won't take long for you to experience dehydration and malnutrition. If you go for any extended time without food and water, you die. And so the same is true from a spiritual sense. The same is true with the human heart. And that's part of the point that he's making. How oh, everyone who thirsts. He's speaking to all of the people who are empty and lonely. In order to secure living water and in order to secure bread from heaven, we have to ask ourselves, well, where do we get bread from heaven? Where do we get living water? 
and we know from the New Testament that Jesus is the living water. That Jesus is the bread who came down from heaven. And it says in verse 2, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Look what it says. Buy without money and without price. Well, what are you talking about? The question is, what will I be charged for living water? What will I be charged for the bread that comes down from heaven? What is the cost? It's nothing. It's free. It's absolutely free. God's salvation is a free gift, and we learn that over and over again in the New Testament. You're saved by grace through faith. It cannot be secured with money. You can't secure salvation with religious duty or indentured service. If that were the case, now think about it for just a moment. If you could purchase your salvation, if you could earn your salvation, if you could do something that would obligate God, then God would be obligated. And guess what? God refuses to be obligated. God will not be subject to any man. That's why in the New Testament, Paul writes that you're saved by grace through faith, that not of works, lest any person should boast. Imagine, here was the invitation. I'll save anyone and everyone if they can just be good for one day. Just one day. There would be people who would try to get out of it. They would go, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a massive dose of anesthesia so I can just sleep for 24 hours. That way I won't, you know, I won't have to worry about what I look at. I won't have to worry about what I say. I won't have to worry about what I do. Hey, look, if I'm in a state of suspended animation, can I go for 24 hours and not think a bad thought? But guess what? We would still fail. Because even in your dreams, you're wicked. God won't be subject to human beings. All creation and all creatures are in debt to God. Whatever God gives, He gives by grace. He gives freely. The water, the food are freely given. In Acts chapter 13, verse 39, it says, And by Him, speaking of Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, it says, For all have sinned. And have fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You're redeemed and saved. And so in verse two, why do you spend your money for what's not bread and your wages for what doesn't satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and let your soul delight in abundance. Do you understand what Isaiah is doing? He's pleading with them. He's pleading with the people who are listening. Why would you spend money for that which isn't bread? Your wages for that which isn't, won't satisfy. How long will you keep trying to buy joy and forgiveness and peace? How long will you continue to buy into this world system? How long will you buy the drugs and the alcohol? How long will you buy the entertainment? How long will you continue to try and Fill the emptiness inside of you. And no matter what you have, no matter what you don't have, the emptiness 
persists. Isaiah is basically saying, guess what? You have absolutely no reason whatsoever to resist God and continue to cling to idols. You have no reason to refuse God. Our world is a gigantic supermarket. We have an invitation to purchase from this vast buffet of man-made speculations. Here's the idea. Over and over again, there's an invitation that's extended to you by the world to believe its lies, to embrace its embarrassments. Have you ever had a dream that you were thirsty? That quite literally you were dying of thirst? You might have been dreaming and 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 you imagine because you, you haven't drank any liquids for a very long time, your your tongue is is absolutely clinging to the roof of your mouth and it feels like you haven't drank anything at all. The very presence of thirst indicates a necessity. And by the way, it's not a sin to be hungry. And it's not a sin to be thirsty. It's what we seek to satisfy that thirst, to quench that thirst. Have you noticed that human beings aren't very sharp shoppers? They're offered all of these different things. But it's not going to satisfy. We're in a soup kitchen in the slum line when we should be in God's glorious all-you-can-eat cafe. And so part of what Isaiah is doing is he's inviting you to experience joy and satisfaction. How do you buy that which cannot be bought? Even as you're looking at the verse and you say, well, how can I purchase that which cannot be purchased? Here's the answer. The only way that you can purchase that which cannot be purchased is to have somebody else buy it for you. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches, that Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. I was listening to John MacArthur on the radio today, and he was bringing out the reality that that God, for reasons that we don't quite understand, chose to treat Jesus exactly as you should be treated. That's the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. He was wounded for your transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquity. The chastisement of his peace was upon you. By his stripes you are healed. In other words, all of the wickedness, all of the sin, all of the stupidity, all of the wrong things that you've done, he places it on Jesus and he treats a person who is sinless as if he's a sinner. And here's the mystery. He places every sin and all sin that you've ever committed on the Savior. But God in His greatness doesn't restrict just simply your sin, but my sin and the sin of the person sitting next to you and the sin of the person who was born Adam's first son and every human being who who has ever existed. And then God, in His incredible mercy and grace, treats you As if you're Jesus Christ, as if you're righteous, as if you're perfect and as if if you're forgiven. 
And Jesus, in John chapter 6, verse 35, said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. In John chapter 7, verse 37, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood. He cried, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And drink. Now, you'll note something. Jesus makes himself the point of satisfaction. He doesn't say, come to church. He doesn't say, come to the Bible. He doesn't say, come to Catholicism or Protestantism. He doesn't say, come to my church. He says, come to me. And look at the promise in verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of God. Here's the, the issue. How do you do it? How do you have what God desires? So part of what Isaiah is doing is how do you have the satisfaction? How do you have your thirst satisfied and your hunger satisfied? Here's what what Isaiah says. Incline your ear. It's an idiomatic expression in the the Old Testament, which means listen up or listen to God's word. It's his way of saying, I want you to listen to God's word. Listen with patience. And by the way, if you want to know what God desires, that's exactly what you have to do. You have to be willing to listen to God's word. You have to be willing to listen to God's word and you need to be willing to listen with patience. And you need to be willing to pour over every truth that God speaks. Now, this is what's difficult in part for some of us. Because we read the Bible or we listen to the Bible and it goes in one ear and out the other. So how do we get it to lodge in that little tiny organ that that lies right between our ears? How do we do it? I'm going to suggest something to you. You begin by listening to the Word of God, but the second step is to respond in obedience to the Word. It's not good enough that you simply hear the Word of the Lord. You have to heed the Word of the Lord. So the invitation in the Bible is, listen and respond. And so he says, incline your ear, listen to God's word, incline your ear, come to me, hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Do you understand what the sure mercies of David is? It's an everlasting covenant with the steadfast love for David. And God made a pledge to David. For those of you who have the time and the inclination, you go to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and you read the story. Many of you know that Saul failed. He was the first king of Israel. And after the failure of Saul, God chose David to be the king. And God made a promise to David that David's son would rule forever. And you know who David's son is? Jesus. Jesus is the heir of David's throne. Jesus is the true king. Will you have him as your king? God is committed to the eternal triumph of the throne of King Jesus. And so here is the idea. God made a sure covenant with 
David that his offspring would occupy an everlasting throne. And here's the idea. That his offspring would occupy the throne. He would live, but guess what? Not even death would stop him, and he would rise from the dead. The idea is that Jesus can't fail. His triumph covers our failures. God will never break, and he will never break from his promise to David. So God calls this agreement that he made with David an eternal covenant. God makes this eternal covenant with David, but here's part of the point that Isaiah is making in this passage. God is willing to make an eternal, unbreakable covenant with you. And what's the eternal, unbreakable covenant? Reread what the passage says. Come to me. Hear. Your soul shall live. A covenant is an agreement. It's a binding agreement between two parties. In verse 4 it says, Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and a commander for the people. The Lord directs our attention to the suffering servant, the Messiah in chapter 53. And then in verse 54, Indeed, I've given him the suffering servant, the Messiah, as a witness to my people. Remember, I've told you over and over again what a witness is. A person who knows the facts, who can testify to the facts, who has a reputation for honesty. Jesus is a witness of God. He knows about God, and he knows the truth about God, and he knows the promises of God. And so that is the witness. It's a leader and a commander of the people. Now, I'm going to suggest something to you. The him, in verse 4, I'm going to suggest refers back to David. When it says, indeed, I have given him as a witness to, to the people. Let me explain it to you. David was a witness to the people of Israel. And the witness that he's making reference to is the witness of the promise that his son would occupy an everlasting throne. And so in verse 5 it says, Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Isaiah's statement is that salvation is not restricted to the Jews. It's available to Gentiles. It's available to the wicked. It's available to the poor. It's available to the depressed and the disenfranchised. So nations, that the word is ethnos in, in the Greek, and it refers actually to um, people groups. In the Hebrew, it's goim. Because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. And by the way, in verse 5 where it it would appear that the you, again, refers back to David. The rule of David from David's throne. The nations are going to rally around that throne. But here is the idea. There's going to be a king. The king is going to occupy the throne. He's going to occupy the throne in mercy, in justice, and righteousness. And the nations will flock to him. And here's another idea. That the only person worthy to occupy that throne 
is King Jesus. And so the prophet Isaiah sees the nations, even the unknown nations. Here is the idea that Isaiah knows about the world in which he's living in. The, the world to the north where there's Assyria. The world to the, to the south where there's Egypt. The world to the east where there's Babylon. The world to the west where there's Crete and Greece. But way beyond the nations that he has absolutely no idea about, the nations that he's never heard of will come and kneel at the throne of Christ. And what draws them? What draws them? What, what is it about this king that draws them? And it's the glory of the Lord. It's the beauty of his teaching. It's the beauty of his miracles, his humility, his sufferings, his death, and his ability to come back to life. Does that sound like anybody you know? No wonder all of the New Testament writers believed that this was a reference to Jesus. And so, it says that the cause of Christ basically is the only cause that will last forever. So we enter into causes. We, we fight for things and, and circumstances. We try to bring... Um, justice and peace and reconciliation and all of those things are important but there's only one thing that has a forever eternal majestic consequence and you know what it is? It's Jesus it's his throne it's his future kingdom and so here is the idea that Isaiah is bringing up that it's backed by the authority of God and so the reality that this king is coming and that his kingdom is forever there is a sense of urgency that Isaiah brings to us and so there's this passionate plea in verse 6 he says seek the Lord while he may be found call upon him while he is near my wife gets really frustrated because I am the world's worst dresser. Slowest. I mean, it takes me two... You know, men complain about women taking a long time to get ready. For whatever reason, ever since I was a kid... Do you remember when you were a kid and you would go to P.E.? I, I don't know, maybe some of you are young and they don't have physical education anymore. But when I was a kid, you had to go to the gym. And then you had, to, you know, you had P.E. And then you went into the locker. And they gave you like three to five minutes to get showered, to get dressed, and to get back to the class. I was always late. Always. Without exception. And, and you know, the, the, the teachers would... would give me a reprimand and then they would suspend me and then they would keep me after school and nothing worked. And so they just gave up and they just came to grips with the fact that I would always be late. And so my poor sweet wife, she'll say, don't dawdle. Stop messing around. We need to get going. And that's exactly what he's saying. Seek the Lord. You need to get going. We have to be specific and intentional. Seeking means to have a goal. Finding means to be free. And so he says, seek the Lord. The idea of seeking him means put him first. Remove everything and everyone that keeps you from seeking him. Hear his word. Stop arguing with the Lord. Stop opposing his will. Stop making promises and deals with God. Well, I promise, I promise, I'm making a deal. Everything's going to be changed this year. This is the year that everything is going to be different. 
what Isaiah is basically saying is stop making deals. Stop messing around. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Stop treating Jesus like a side dish in your life like the main entree. Stop treating Jesus as if he's on the periphery. Stop treating Jesus as, as if he's the person that you hear about, talk about, think about on Wednesday night or on Sunday morning, but on Monday and Tuesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, you have your whole life to yourself. Jesus wants to be the core, the center. Seeking the Lord means realigning your life so completely that Jesus is the preoccupation of your He's the thing that you think about. He's the person that you speak about. He's the person whose heart you're filled, you're filled with. Seek the Lord. And you know why he says, while well, he may be found? Because there will come a time when he cannot be found. Do you know how we know that? Do you remember in the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verse 3? It says, the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. My spirit will not strive with man forever. The idea is he speaks to Noah, and Noah issues an invitation to a lost and a dying world to enter into an ark of salvation. For the people in Noah's day, the speech continued for 120 years, but once the last person went into the ark and the door was closed and the rain came down, Guess what? They could seek the Lord all they wanted. But he wouldn't be found. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And look what it says in verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Here's the idea. Look what it says. Let the wicked forsake his way. The idea being that the wicked has an opportunity to turn from his or her wickedness. Have you ever had someone say, I'm too wicked to come to God? Yes, it's true. You really are. But you can forsake your way. And the unrighteous man has thought, you don't understand. I can't give up all of this wicked thinking. What one of my pastors used to call stinking thinking. But you can. And the way to do it isn't to just simply stop thinking wicked thoughts. You have to fill your, your mind with new thoughts. Thoughts of joy and thoughts of praise. Remember what the New Testament says. It's not good enough to, 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 to stop stealing. You have to start working. It's not good enough to stop lying. You have to start telling the truth. So he says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and look at the consequence. And he, the Lord, will have mercy on him. Look what it doesn't say. And he will consider it, think about it, and then probably reject you. Have you ever tried to experience a reconciliation with someone and you were afraid to talk to them and you were afraid to meet with them because you didn't think that they would have anything to do with you? Sometimes we treat God that way. It says, let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God. Look what it says. For he will 
abundantly pardon. Aren't you glad it doesn't say, and he will reluctantly pardon. Oh, all right. I wrote it in the Bible. I guess I have to keep my word. Okay, you got me. You turned to Isaiah 55 and you put your finger right on this passage. I guess I have to do it. He doesn't reluctantly pardon. You know who reluctantly pardons? You and me. Will you forgive me? I guess. I guess I have to. I guess that's what the Bible says. But you see, God will abundantly pardon. The banquet of God's grace is free and abundant, but it's conditional. I want you to think for just a moment. Remember in verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts. In verse 7, He will pardon the wicked. Guess what? The reason why we're thirsty is because we are wicked. The thirst reveals the actual circumstances of our life. What are you hungry for? I don't know. What are you thirsty for? I don't know. Do you remember being hungry and thirsty? Now, from a physical standpoint, you may be hungry and you may be thirsty. And you you say to your wife, you say to your husband, you say to the person next to you, well, what are you hungry for? I don't know. I just know that I'm hungry. But you know what the wicked is hungry for? Righteousness. You know what the guilty is hungry for? Exoneration. Freedom. Do you remember why you came to Christ? It wasn't, I suspect, if you're like me, because of the threat of hell. It wasn't because the threat of hell was hanging over your head. It was because of the possibility that you might experience love, that you might experience hope, that you might experience grace, that you might experience peace, that you might experience forgiveness, that you might experience cleansing from your own guilt. And all of a sudden, one day, you is it true? Is it, is it true that the Lord will will forgive me? We have some adjusting to do. The opportunity is limited. The door is wide open right now. But the door will close. That's why it says, seek the Lord while he may be The New Testament says today is the day of salvation. In order to accept Jesus, you have to reject yourself. We don't simply tolerate our sin. We love our sin. And so we have to turn from it. Ray Orland wrote, Our ways and thoughts trivialize God and exalt ourselves and the status quo and our adequacy and our okayness. But the truth is, we're wrong. And what's wrong with us is everything we are. 
right down to our thoughts. No wonder he says, seek the Lord. Call on Him. Turn from Him. Or turn to Him. Forsake your wickedness. And the unrighteous man, forsake his thoughts. In other words, we are harmed. We are wicked. We are perverted. We are corrupted. And it doesn't just end with what we do. It fundamentally lies in who we are. We are wicked. And yet, no matter how wicked we are, we won't forsake our wicked ways. We won't return to the Lord. Or we will. Here's the deal. The wicked can remain in their wickedness. Or they can forsake it. Forsake what they're doing and forsake what they're thinking and and return to the Lord and cry out to Him to have mercy. And guess what? He will. He'll be our God. He'll abundantly pardon. And what's really interesting, again, like I said, the abundant pardon isn't a reluctant pardon. It isn't something that you have to eat glass. You don't have to light candles. You don't have to take a sacred journey. You don't have to be for good for for a day, for a whole day. If you're good for a whole day, then you can forsake your wickedness. Your wicked thoughts. So here's the deal. How is that possible? How is it possible, again, for God to take someone who is wicked and unrighteous and unclean? How is it possible that God can take the guilty and make them innocent? How can He take the unrighteous and make them righteous? And it is in that context that you read verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. It's God's way of saying, I'm not like you. I'm not you. I don't. I'm, my nature isn't the same as your nature. My thoughts are not the same as your thoughts. My ways are not the same ways. Think about the context. The context is God will offer mercy and God will offer pardon and God will offer freedom and God will offer acceptance and God will offer grace. And Isaiah chapter 55 is one of the most magnificent revelations in all of the Old Testament about how. Old Testament believers were saved. Do you know how they were saved? By grace, through faith, trusting that the suffering servant would come and be the substitute and the satisfaction. Just like you. How is that possible? How is grace possible? How is it made possible? Because Jesus will save sinners. He will experience thirst and hunger and punishment. He will do what needs to be done in order to satisfy the justice of God. Do you understand part of what's happening? When Jesus says, I love him and I love her and I want to save him, want to save her. Put your name there. 
I love him. I love her. I want to save him. I want to save her. And God's conversation, the Father's conversation to the Son is, you know what? You need to understand something, Son. I'm going to treat you exactly as I would have treated them. I'm going to inflict upon you the full, substantial punishment that they rightly deserve. I am not going to refrain and I'm not going to let up simply because you're my son. I'm, I'm going to, you're going to experience the full punishment that that person deserves. How is that possible? Look at verse 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is calling all of us back to school, to human existence 101. And for all of those times that we sit and we cogitate and we think and we philosophize and we evaluate and we ask, how is it possible? How, how can predestination and free will be true? And how is it possible that God can choose you and yet you choose God? I mean, is Calvinism correct? Is Arminianism correct? And here's, here's the deal. We want to create a philosophical and a theological construct so that we can answer that which is not answerable. We are uncomfortable with mystery. We are uncomfortable with how God can do things that we don't understand. The Hubble telescope peers into space. And the Hubble telescope finds a tiny dot in the heavens and it looks further than any human being has ever looked before and according to the calculations of the astronomers the Hubble telescope has looked 17 billion light years to the edge of the universe and that's just as far as we've seen so far 17 billion light years and remember Light travels at over 100,000 miles a second. Now, imagine you take a beam of light and you shoot it off into the galaxies and the heavens, and it travels for a million years, and then a billion years, and then 10 billion years, and then 17 billion years, and you come to the outer edges of our perception and you haven't gone anywhere at all because you still can't comprehend his thoughts God sees all and knows all and understands all and because he knows all and sees all and understands all and desires to save you and redeem you and reconcile you he's created a mechanism where his love can be demonstrated and his justice can be satisfied. And so he gives a meteorological illustration in verse 10. Look what it says. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and doesn't return, but waters the earth and makes it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. You have to understand something. You have to understand the context in which this is being made. Remember, who is this written to? It's the, to the children of Israel. Where do they live? They live in the desert. 
they are going to be uprooted from the desert and they're going to be taken to Babylon and they're going to be beside the Euphrates River. The children of Israel in Egypt, there's a big river that runs through the center of Egypt. Who remembers the name of that river? The Nile. There's another big river that runs through Babylon. What's the name of that river? Euphrates. There's, there's a little river that runs through Israel. Who knows what the name of that is? It's the Jordan and it's a mud puddle. It's not a river. I've been to the Jordan. If you look at the center aisle in our sanctuary right there, the Jordan is smaller than that aisle right there. That's not a river. My grandma's from Mississippi, and she said, that's not even a creek. They don't have a river. And because they don't have a river, they're dependent on the rain. The people of Israel were dependent on the rain for survival. And guess what? If the rain didn't come, the people starved. And so God places people on land where they had to trust Him for the rain. God placed His people in a place where they didn't have a river, where they had to trust that the rain would take care of them. And it could very well be that God has placed you in a circumstance where there's not a river flowing through your life. He's placed you in a circumstance where you have to trust Him. You don't have a sugar daddy. You don't have a silver spoon. You're not a trust fund baby. You may be placed in a circumstance where every day that you get up, you have to trust Him. Now, here is the idea. In verse 10, when it says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and doesn't return there, but waters the earth and brings forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, the idea is that they were dependent on the rain for their life. And so in verse 11, when it says, So shall my word be that goes from my mouth, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing in which I have sent it. My word, when it says, So shall my word, my word sums up every promise that God has made up until this point from Genesis all the way to Isaiah chapter 55. He says, my word that goes forth from my mouth, just like the rain comes down from heaven and the word of God comes down from heaven in order to make a provision, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing in which I sent it. The idea being, Remember, Isaiah said, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. The word lasts. The word gives life. And because the word lasts and the word gives life, here's the idea. We don't give the gospel life. The gospel gives us life. Now, the reason why this becomes important is when when the Lord says the word of God will not return to him void, the idea is that the word of God is effectual. And here's the key. Even when people don't believe it. Now imagine, I'm going to use an illustration real quick. Imagine the people in Noah's day didn't believe in rain. We don't believe in rain. It's never rained before. We don't believe in rain. We don't believe in judgment. Rain and judgment is not in our belief system. 
preaches. Rain's coming. Judgment's coming. Get into the ark. We don't believe in rain. We don't believe in judgment. No. Often people will say to me, and particularly on my program, I had a guy last week, he goes, I have friends. You know, I have friends. I have family. You know, I, I want to tell them about the Bible, but they don't believe the What do you do with your family and friends when they don't believe the Bible? Isn't it worthless? Isn't it useless? Isn't it a waste of time to share the Word of God when people don't even believe the Word of God? Here's the point of Isaiah's message. Share the Word of God even in spite of their unbelief. You know, I don't believe that the Bible is true. I, I know you don't believe that the Bible is true, but did you know that the Bible says that if you'll come to Him, He'll receive you? I don't believe the Bible. You, I know you don't believe the Bible, but do you, do you know that the Bible says all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God? I don't believe the Bible. I know you don't believe the Bible, but do you realize that if you'll receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, He will save you? Because He said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And here in Isaiah, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Let the wicked forsake His way. Let the unrighteous man abandon his unrighteous thoughts. But I don't believe that. God says, just like the rain comes down from heaven and just like my word and my promises come down from heaven, it will have the effect that I desire it to have. By the way, that's the point that Isaiah is making. God's word is like the rain. Now again, I need you to help me. Where does the rain come from? Up there. From heaven. From beyond us. By the way, here's a question. How many of us can control the rain? Now, there are people who say they can. You know, they'll do a rain dance or they'll seed the clouds or they'll do whatever they want to do. Do the people in Texas believe that you can control the rain? No. We receive the rain. And that's the same. We receive life. We receive the promise. We receive it. It comes down. And when it comes down from heaven, just like the rain brings life and it opens up the plant and it makes the plant bud, what he is saying is that real life comes from heaven and it it goes on the surface of the soil and the person who is dead can experience real life and you can quench, you can't quench it. We receive the life. And so here, here's the application in verse 12. For you shall go out with joy and be let out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. When I was a kid growing up, we would sing the, the song. They shall go out with joy and be led with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you. We would, and, and here's the idea. Do all people respond to the gospel? No. Some do. Some don't. Some accept it. Some accept it. Does creation respond to the promises of God? Yes. That's it. For you shall go out with joy. Here's the point. Creation explodes with celebration. And the fact that creation explodes with celebration 
should cause each and every one of us to ponder. It should cause the unbeliever to, to pause and say, hey, wait, when the, when the rain comes down from heaven and it lands on the dry dirt and it awakens the seed within the dirt and it comes back to life, the illustration that Isaiah is making that when the promise comes down from heaven and it drops on the dry, dark, bleak surface of the soil, the word of God will sometimes penetrate the heart and all of a sudden the unbeliever will become a believer. And the person will go, oh my God, the the Bible's true. The promises of God are true. And how great is salvation? It involves the restoration of all of created order. In verse 13, instead of the thorn shall come the cypress tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. That expression, and it shall be to the Lord for a name. Here's the idea. That when the Messiah comes, and he rules, and he reigns, and all of creation is restored to its original order, then God will be glorified. Again, Ray Ortland says, the renewed creation enjoyed by a renewed humanity, ruled by an unchanging Christ. The whole point of this massive salvation is to display forever what kind of a person that God is. The curse will be reversed. C.S. Lewis's silent planet will become the singing planet. And never again will there be another human fall like Adam's. And our salvation will be an ever lasting sign that shall not be cut off to the eternal glory of God. Jesus is going to return in justice and righteousness. <laughs> Peter Kreep, he's a, a great theologian. He wrote, Now suppose both death and hell were utterly defeated Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw with an indubitable certainty that despite everything, despite your sin, despite your smallness, despite your stupidity, that you could have free for the asking your whole crazy heart's deepest desire, heaven, eternal joy. Wouldn't you return fearless and singing? What can the earth do to you if you're guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny. Less. The scratch of a penny. What do you have to be afraid of? Because God has given you everything in Christ. Hope, forgiveness, future, restoration, grace, blessing. And that's just Isaiah 55. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, imagine. We know that death and hell has been utterly defeated. Lord, we know that the fight has been fixed. That Jesus is the Lord. That he's conquered death and hell. That he's risen from the dead. 
that he's promised us eternal life and that he will make good his promise and that he can't fail. In the same way that he gave an eternal covenant to David, he's offering and extending an eternal promise to us. If you'll come to me, if you'll turn from your sin, if you'll turn to the Savior, he will absolutely, abundantly, not reluctantly pardon and cleanse you and wash you and fill you with his love and with his joy and with his peace, with real rescue, real salvation, real hope. And so again, just like the invitation has been extended by Isaiah, Lord, I pray that I could extend the invitation on your behalf to every man and every woman who's listening to the sound of my voice. That if they will turn from their sin, they'll repent, forsake their wicked thoughts, and turn to you wholly and completely, specifically and unashamedly, and trust Jesus that they would experience cleansing and hope and forgiveness and love. And Lord, each person who's listening to me can do that in the privacy of their heart and and the place of their seat, wherever they happen to find themselves, that they can, with complete confidence, believe your promises. Accept your promises. And act on your promises. In Jesus' name. Amen.